0: this morning we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 21. It's towards the back, right next to the tables of weights and measurements, maybe, in your Bibles. Page 1937 in the Pew Bibles. Well, the great Jack Handy once said, I can picture in my mind a world without war and a world without hate and I can picture us attacking that world because they never expect it. I think that's funny because it's partially true isn't it? All utopian dreams one day wake up to reality. World peace, a safe planet, the end of world hunger. The end of AIDS, they sound sometimes more like fairy tales and fiction than actual possibilities. We can work together towards those ends, those good ends, but sometimes it just seems hopeless. Even if we did accomplish something great, putting an end to one of these major problems, probably some leader or country or large corporation would come along and ruin it all. So why even try? Why even try to fight against the evils of racism or sex trafficking or try to end world hunger? Well, the last chapters of Revelation picture a city without war, without hate, a city that is perfect in every way, a city that is impenetrable towards evil and impurity or attack. But is this world that we see here in Revelation 21 just a fantasy? Is it a religious myth that's cooked up to give us hope in this life? Is it an escapism for those who need a psychological crutch to deal with the unknown of what happens after the end? Well, those questions come from our current city. A city of skepticism and rebellion. But there is a truer word that speaks. A one that calls us to a far better existence than we could ever imagine and dream of. And it's the voice of God in the book of Revelation. So let's turn there to Revelation 21, verses 9 through 27, as we continue this three-week series in life after the end. And this morning, consider the city of God. had a great high wall with 12 gates, and with the 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as high as wide and as high as it is long. He measured its wall, and it has 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald. The fifth Sardonx, the sixth Carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth Beryl, the ninth Topaz, the, th- the tenth Chrysoprase, and the eleventh Jacinth, and the twelfth Amphist. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each made of a single pearl. The great city- street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb were its temple. The city does not need the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Well, in our passage this morning, we see a vision of heaven pictured as a great city. And we learn that it is the Lamb City, the priceless city, and God's city. The Lamb City, a priceless city, and God's city. My prayer for us as we consider this heavenly city is that our identity would be rooted in this coming city rather than the city that we currently dwell in, the city of this world. So first, we see that this city is the Lamb's city. And this is particularly emphasized in verses 9 through 14. Let me just read those again. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Last week, when we looked at the new creation, the focus... Was on God. God the husband, God the father, and God the perfect judge. Today, in this passage, we zoom in on the bride. We zoom in on this city that God is preparing his people for. Now, it might be a little bit confusing as you look at these verses, though, because these verses tell us that the bride is the city of New Jerusalem coming out of the sky. And the text is going to jump back and forth between those two images. So keep that in mind. The city, look at verses 9 and 10, is the bride. Verse 9, we have the introduction of the bride. And how she is introduced is very important. The the angel who had the seven bowls of the plagues of wrath comes to show her to John. And if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you know this isn't the first time that John and this angel have met. If you want, you can turn back to chapter 17 to see briefly. This same angel had shown John another woman earlier. A prostitute. This prostitute is the harlot of the earthly city of Babylon. Arrayed in gold, jewels, pearls, and luxury later we learn that this prostitute is also a great city the great city of babylon so as we look at our passage this morning we see right away that john is meaning to see us to help us see a stark contrast between two women and two cities on the one hand you have the new jerusalem the heavenly city the bride the lamb the lamb city and then you have the prostitute and the earthly city of Babylon. Now, the great fall of the prostitute and the city of Babylon has already occurred in chapter 18 by this point in the story. And it's fitting that this would happen first, for Babylon must fall in order for the new Jerusalem to come and replace her. So although Babylon has fallen, and that's in the past tense in this vision, today... Where we sit today, August 11th, 2013, Babylon is still alive and doing quite well. We live in her midst. It's filled with real pleasures, charms, riches, power, success, and luxury. But John warns us in chapters 17 and 18 that these pleasures are deceitful. The charms are fleeting. The power is counterfeit. You and I have been to Babylon. We know her well. We have seen her. We have lusted over her. We have romanced her. Question for us is, are we going to meet her same end that we see in chapter 18? Or is our chapter this morning, chapter 21, our future? The Lamb City, the people of God, is pictured here in chapter 21. Today, I confess, she isn't much to look at. She has many blemishes. She seems out of touch. She often seems boring. Sometimes we find ourselves falling asleep when she's speaking to us. People laugh or call you out of touch or unethical even when they see you out with her. When you seek to introduce your friends, To this bride. Uh, You know they have other better things to do. They're busy and they find many excuses. Not to come meet her. Do you want to be associated with this woman? Do you want to be a citizen of this city? Most people will choose not to be. But here we see that appearances are deceiving. And the veil is lifted here at the end of time. And we see the truth. Do you notice who the new Jerusalem, the bride belongs to in verse nine? This is the big difference between Babylon and the new Jerusalem. New Jerusalem has a husband. And that husband is the lamb who is Jesus Christ, the lamb who makes those who were once rebels of the king, the bride of the prince. How can this be? How could something so remarkable happen? Well, the lamb takes the judgment that Jerusalem deserved and clothes her then in the righteousness of the king. God's people belong to him because the lamb has purchased the bride with a great price. As Ephesians 2 says, we were aliens, strangers and far off. Then God intervened and and he took spiritual idolaters and adulterers like us and he transformed us. He made his fellow citizens and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. One day soon, this bride, the church, will come down from heaven, emanating with the glory of God himself. The purity, glory, beauty, and holiness that we saw emanating from the throne of God is now described as coming from the Lamb, the church Verse 11 gives us a good picture of this. Heaven and earth are meeting here. God's throne and kingdom is being established on earth, just as it is in heaven. And what's the first thing that God wants us to notice about heaven? It's how beautiful he's made the church. He is so proud of her. For what was once weak and despised, now is beautiful. This city is more amazing than anything that George Lucas or any film could dream up. One day we will all see this city coming down out of heaven. The only question for us now is when and will we be a citizen of this great city? I think the truth of these verses call us to a point of decision today. What woman will we choose? What city will you call your home? I think often our bank accounts and credit card statements will will tell us what city is our home. Our kids or our family members and close friends could, if they were honest with us, they could probably tell us. Are you living for this city, the earthly city, or are you living for the one to come, the one we see pictured here? You know, living for the city to come will mean taking up your cross. It will often mean being uncool, out of touch with the customs of the city. You know, to live for the city to come means to walk by faith and not by sight. That's something that we just sang about, something that's illustrated in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. We see a picture of all these faithful men and women who were by no means perfect, but they lived looking forward to a city with a foundation whose designer and builder was God. We see a brief description of the city in verses 12 through 14. You see a high wall that symbolizes the security of the city. And the 12 open gates picture that this is the place where all God's people can enter. This is their home. So it makes sense that the gates would have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and the foundations of the city would have the names of the 12 apostles. All of God's people will be here in the Lamb's city. You might have a couple questions so far about this passage that I just want to clarify. One question you might have is, so is the new Jerusalem, is that a people or a place? The answer is yes. It's It's both. I think this is clear in verses 9 and 10, and I, I mentioned earlier, is also true of Babylon and the harlot. You can see that in chapter 18. You, you, I think um, in order to help us understand this, you know, we often identify ourselves with a place. We call ourselves an Orgonian, or we call this building, this place, uh, the church, even though we know, you know, the church is the people of God. I think John is just using some similar logic here. Another question that you might have, maybe in a little bit of frustration, is why all the symbolism? John, why can't you just tell us how it is and talk in plain language like everybody else? Well, I think there's a couple answers to this. Uh, one, John could not use mere words to describe what he's seeing here. It goes beyond what words could do even close to do justice to. Uh, Second, I think John has a bigger concern um, than just giving us a photograph like we talked about last week. John is showing us using lots of images and pictures from the Old Testament that God has fulfilled his promise. So he's drawing on lots of prophecies, specifically Ezekiel 40 through 48, where the prophet Ezekiel got a magnificent vision of the coming temple and city of God. John's vision here of this new Jerusalem will call to mind that prophecy for uh, for John's first readers in the first century who knew their Bibles better than we do today. John is saying the holy city, the holy temple of Ezekiel is coming. I've seen it. And it's the Lamb's city. It's the bride, the church, the people of God. Well, second, we see that this city is a priceless city, And we see the priceless worth of God's people in verses 15 through 21. You can look there. I won't read those verses again, mainly because I have a hard time pronouncing those stones. Why all the measurements and the naming of these precious stones? You know, this section, when you first read it, seems more like a description that maybe Dwight from the office would give if he were to examine the city. Well, the, the measuring of the city reveals a few things about the city. First, we learn from Revelation 11 that the activity of measuring uh, a sanctuary area was meant to communicate that uh, this was a safe and a, a protected city that was unwelcome from, uh, from defiling intruders. So that's what we get from Revelation 11. I think in our context today, since we don't go to temple, maybe we have a hard time understanding it, but I liken it to this. I'm no handyman or builder, but if I were to build a shed or a garage or a house or something, I'm going to need a tape measure, right? Right, Cass? Uh, So, but if I don't use a tape measure, if I just try to eyeball the structure, you know, the first knock on the door by an intruder is going to probably bring the thing coming crashing to the ground. Now, I probably even know if I used a tape measure, it would still come crashing to the ground, but it's, that's besides the point. God is showing us that this city has precise dimensions. It's perfect, and it's, so it's completely secure. So second, we see in verse 16 that the dimensions of the city reveal that it is a perfect cube. The Holy of Holies, the most holy place in the temple in the Old Testament, was also a perfect cube. It was a place in the innermost part of the temple where God's special presence dwelt. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. And only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And only after going through all these cleansing rituals was he able to go. And they would put bells on him and put a rope sometimes around his legs so that if his impurity or unholiness was an offense to God, he could be struck dead and they would just yank him out by the rope. No one else. Could go into the Holy of Holies, or else they would face dire consequences. We see this in the storyline of Scripture. The altar, the ark, the Holy of Holies. God is holy, and He cannot be with an impure people. But the point John is making here in this future city is that the whole city is the Holy of Holies. The whole city is a cube. God's presence fills. The entire earth. Also, the numbers and, that we have for the walls and the city, these are all symbolic. The number twelve is key here. Well, if, if you know your Bible, maybe you know the number seven is the number for completion. Uh, the number twelve can be similar. Uh, more specifically, the number 12 stands for the people of God. You know, you have the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, the 12 apostles in the New Testament. Notice then the, the dimensions. We have 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000 stadia, and the walls are 144 cubits thick, which is 12 times 12. So if you have a Bible translation that's trying to convert stadia and cubits to miles and feet, your translation's doing you a disservice. These are not literal dimensions of this future city. This is meant to be symbolic. This is meant to show us that the the city is God's people, complete and whole. Old Testament saints and New Testament saints together. I trust many from Henson will be in this future city. Pillars in God's city and temple. But the main takeaway that we see from this section is that the city is of priceless value to the lamb. We see here that um, we we know this from other places in Scripture. We look at verses 18 and 21 where we see about the walls and the foundations of the city being arrayed in these costly stones. Well, this this isn't the first time in Scripture that we have heard about these costly stones Uh, in, in the beginning. In in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, we learned from Ezekiel and Genesis that before man's fall from grace, Eden was full of these costly stones. So God is showing us here that heaven will be a return to the paradise of Eden. Second, we see these stones appear on the high high priest's breastplate, who I talked about earlier. When he would go into the Holy of Holies, he would have these 12 stones. On his breastplate with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, either on the stones or underneath. And he would go into the Holy of Holies. These stones were meant to picture that the priest was going as a representative for each of those tribes. And finally, and probably most importantly, in the book of Isaiah, we see that God will take his afflicted children and he will lavish them with riches. And establish their foundations with these costly stones. I think we should take great comfort in this. When we look at this at first, we just see a bunch of strange stones. But God values his people, the church. If this is how the lamb plans to deck out his bride, the church, on the final day, do you think that today he's going to leave his people out to dry? You know, if you or I were to have a a ring or a coin that was worth millions, I don't think we'd just put it in our pocket and forget about it. No, we'd go to great lengths, wouldn't we, to make sure that 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 coin or that piece of jewelry was safe and secure. This is how God cares for his church now as we await this final day. God cares for you, Christian. He will keep you safe. The trials that you are experiencing, maybe today, are not God's neglect and forgetfulness of you. On the contrary, it's the opposite. God is using the trials to wean you off of your love for this world and instead to tie you tightly to him. Will you see God's good and loving purposes in bringing you through your trials? Will you find security and comfort in the way that God eternally guards and keeps his people? Pinson Baptist, we are not home yet. We are a people who do not look impressive now. But a time is coming when we will be clothed in riches. So how do we prepare for this day as a church? Well, let me put it this way. Has anyone ever given you a really expensive gift? A gift where you're like, oh, no, you you shouldn't have. And you're thinking to yourself, seriously, I wish you wouldn't have. This is kind of embarrassing. Well, God blows that kind of gift out of the water with what he's preparing for those who love him. It should make us blush. It should humble us because we know that we don't deserve this. We are no different from the people who haven't known God's grace. But God has placed his great favor on us. We should be humble to admit that we are sinners. We don't deserve God's grace. But God loves and values his people, his bride, the church. We see a beautiful picture of this. The prophet Zephaniah foresaw a day when God would do this. And he tells us how we should respond. He writes, Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord, your God, is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Don't we serve an amazing God who would rejoice over his people with singing? Who would not spare his own son, but would freely give, us up for, give him up for us all so that we might be presented as pure and blameless on that final day and enjoy his presence and his glory forever. You see how proud God is of his people? You see how much he values his bride, how priceless they are to him? What about you? Do you value God's people this way? Do you value the church? Does this characterize your attitude towards God's people? You know, I think our attitude towards God's people, the church, tells us a lot about our attitude towards God. One theologian said a long time ago, he who doesn't have the church for his mother doesn't have God as his father. You know, I think if we're honest, as consumerist Americans, we are horrible at loving and valuing the church like Christ does. Instead of giving our time, our sports, our money, sacrificing our preferences for the sake of the church, we look for a church to give to us. What's it got for us? How is it going to meet our felt needs? Is this church going to play the kind of music I like? Is the preacher going to be down to earth and someone who's a good speaker and someone who's interesting to listen to? Do I relate with the people well? Are they are they a lot like me? Is the youth group and the children's programs going to provide good, wholesome fun and friends for my kids? What have our churches become? God's church is a bride. A people not a shopping mall. Where did we come up with these ideas? Henson, let's not be tempted to wander back into Babylon, see what's working in that city, and then import it into this heavenly city. Instead, let's get ready for the day when God will purify us and make us like him by centering our lives and giving for the good of god's people the bride just as christ did so how do we do this how do we do this as god's people today well that would be a great conversation to have maybe something good to talk about over lunch how if you you are a part of hinson how do i center my life at hinson in a way that will bring much glory to god many of you are doing this so well already i'm so encouraged I think one way that we do this, just a simple way to get you started, is that we pray for God's people, don't we? we? Even those who, the people who aren't our friends, those who are suffering and hurting, or even those who are just doing fine. You know, we, we use those membership directories we got. Pray for people by name. Pray that we would be a witness to the watching world. Come together to pray on Sunday evenings. Pray for the ministries and the leaders of the church. Ask that God would help us shine like stars in this earthly city. Well, third and finally, we see in verses 22 through 27, what makes this city the city of God? It is God's city. We see that in verses 22 through 27. I will read those verses. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. In these verses, we learn that John doesn't see a temple in the city. At least he doesn't see a physical temple. The reason John doesn't see a physical temple is because of what we read in verse 22, right? The God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Or to put it another way, God and the Lamb have filled the entire new creation with his glorious presence. Yeah, you know, in a sense, we've already considered this, right? Uh, we, were met, we talked about the dimensions of the city, of it being like a cube. This city is the Holy of Holies. That's why there's no physical temple, because God's literal presence is going to dwell over the entire city and earth. The Old Testament anticipated this. We see in the very beginning that God created the Garden of Eden to be like a garden temple as he dwelled with his people just then, Adam and Eve. But they rebelled against his presence. They hid from his presence after they sinned when they made themselves unholy. They could no longer be in the presence of God. Later, Israel... Continually had to go into the temple and offer sacrifices for their impurities and for their sin. They must continually come before the temple because they continue to rebel. This went on for hundreds and hundreds of years until the true temple, the true sacrifice came. The son of God, the lamb himself, Jesus Christ came to dwell amongst his people. He came to show us what God is like because he himself was God. He claimed to be the true temple. And Jesus, as the true temple, exposed the wickedness of men. For that, he was crucified. But through that crucifixion, the true temple showed that he really was the true temple. And through his resurrection, we can know God's presence with us even today. We, the church, are God's temple if we are in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Well, there's only one last chapter to be completed in this storyline of the Bible that we read here. God has accomplished all this so far, and we know how the story ends. It will end by God making us perfectly righteous, perfectly clean, and we will dwell with him In our midst, the true temple, just like we see here in Revelation 21. You know, when Christ comes again, the whole earth will be filled with his glory. He will make the whole world his temple. You know, this makes sense uh, when we see in verse 27 that he's going to purge the world of all evil and impurity. Nothing unclean or defiled will be able to enter there. Instead, God will make those whose names are written in the book of the Lamb's Book of Life His pure bride forever. The city of God is coming soon, brothers and sisters. And when he comes, he's going to shake up the old creation. Just like when Jesus came, the physical temple and the sacrificers were no longer needed. When he comes again, there will be no need for even a sun, moon and stars. Because the whole city, the whole earth will be filled with the light of the almighty God and the lamb. The light of the lamb will fill the entire cosmos and the kings of the earth will come bringing their glory into the city, bowing before God Almighty. All the presidents of the United States will come and bow before God. All dictators and monarchs from all of, all over time will come and bow before the lamb and say worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive glory, power and honor. And God's people will dwell secure forever. God's bride will be safe from evil, death, and the curse. We see that pictured with there being no night in the city. All impurity will be banished from the city. And the gates will be open, symbolizing the security of God's holy people forever. Of course, God's people will be secure. For God will be in her midst. What a day that will be. Amen? In a sense, though, we kind of already knew if we're Christians that heaven's going to be awesome. Right? Jonathan Edwards said that the picture that we see here is one of unending happiness that is incapable of exaggeration. The reason why the happiness will be unending and incapable of exaggeration is because God Himself will be with us. We will see Him as He is. And just as he promises to come and to fill the whole world with his glory, he has already come and he has filled the church with his presence and with his glory. Ephesians 3 says, God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The church is God's plan to fulfill the Great Commission. The church is where it's at, both now and forever. Well, we should conclude. A world without war, a world without hate, A world where the joys and the happinesses that we know in this life are multiplied exponentially. A world where there is no sin. Where there is no curse. Sounds almost too good to be true, doesn't it? Well, let the light of the lamb melt the ice around your doubting heart. For God will accomplish this soon. The one who died for sinners and then rose conquering the gate, the grave and sin and death is coming soon. And we will dwell in his midst. Until that day, let us as a church root our lives in this heavenly city, not this earthly one. And let us treasure the church. Let us treasure Henson, Even as Jesus has shown how much he loves the church and how he will deck her out in priceless jewels. And let us build towards the unity of the church by reflecting what he is like to the watching world so that many more will come to enjoy this priceless city. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a God who redeems, that you are a God who saves, and that you are a God who loves your people. Lord, now we only hear of your glory, but we look forward to the day when we will see your glory, and you will dwell in all your glory and holiness in our midst. Lord, we pray that you would dwell among us today until that great day through your Holy Spirit. May we worship you in spirit and truth this week as your church so that the world might know something of your great love and mercy towards us sinners. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.